Nats Chat is brought to you by Walters. Walters Sports Bar Navy Yard is hiring. Experienced servers and hosts should email brett at waltersdc.com. That's B-R-E-T-T at waltersdc.com for more information or stop by and fill out an application any day after 10 a.m. Come join one of the busiest restaurants around the ballpark for this summer or beyond. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey, Nats fans. Tim Showers here, producer of the Nats Chat Podcast. Before we get started, just want to give you a heads up on something. On an evening where Patrick Murphy struggled on the mound for the Nationals, we had a little bit of a Murphy's Law situation here at the podcast, and uh, that is that Mark's audio isn't as good as it normally is, just a bad batch of luck. Our primary option, which always works, didn't work for this game. Our secondary option, which always works, happened to not work for this game. So we do have the third audio option there. So good news, you're still going to have a podcast. It's just when it comes to Mark, it's not going to be as pristine as it usually is. Appreciate you rolling with it. Now, here's our recap of game number eight in Pittsburgh. Right-hander delivers, swing and a drive, hit a line to right, Park coming over, and that's a base hit. Off his body, has to chase it out of the warning track. Cruz scores from third. Rounding third, coming in to score is Bell. Over to third is Ruiz, and into second with a double and two runs batted in is Yadiel Hernandez. And it's now the Nationals three and the Pirates nothing. Here's the pitch. Swing a blast toward left center. This is toward the gap, and it's going to clear the bases. This one rolls all the way to the bullpen fence. Satsugo scores, Gamble will score, and the Pirates lead 5-3. Here's the pitch. Swing a little looper, shallow left, and this is going to be a hit, dunking in. Perez got a good read, he's headed home, and he will score as Yadiel Hernandez picks it up in very shallow left field. Marisnik stops at second, it's 8-4 Pittsburgh. And welcome to Nats Chat for Friday, April 15th, 2022, along with MassInSports.com Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman, who is in Pittsburgh. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. Well, perhaps we should put on hold our previous conversation about Joanna Doan potentially being a diamond in the rough for the Nats. Maybe he ultimately ends up being a diamond in the rough for the Nats, but for now, we probably should uh, stop bringing that up. The Nats on Thursday evening got ripped at the Pittsburgh Pirates in game one of a four-game series. Nine for the final. Nats now three and five on the season. Adon had a rough go of it. Andres Machado and Patrick Murphy out of the bullpen had rough goes of it. Uh, You know, the two pitching staffs on Thursday night combined 
to issue 14 walks and four wild pitches. A longtime broadcaster for the Pirates is former Pirates pitcher Bob Walk. Yes, his last name is Walk. A very appropriate last name. Maybe not so much for him, but for this game on Thursday night. Uh, Mark, you were there live. A uh, pitching clinic. This game was not. No, it was not. When the game ends, the official scorer is reading all the final totals. He says, time of game, two hours, 37 minutes. We all looked at each other like, what? That can't be right. And, of course, it was three hours and 37 minutes, which felt much more appropriate because this one dragged. You know, credit to the Pirates. They did what they needed to do to win the game. But I wouldn't even come out of this and say the Pirates played some kind of great game. Uh, Their starter, JT Brubaker, got lit up in the first inning and then settled down after that. And the Nationals, I mean, you know, this is what I wrote about in my game story at MassInSports.com. Eight games in now, we've seen them win four and lose four. And there's such a dramatic difference in how they look in the games they win versus how they look in the games they lose. When they win, they look like a good team. When they lose, they look like a really bad team. And it usually comes down to the pitching staff. That's absolutely was the problem in this Yeah, I mean, this was one of those games on Thursday night that we all feared we'd be seeing a lot of this season. And that is your starter just doesn't give you much and the bullpen comes in and doesn't do much better. It really is something, though, right now. I mean, we joke about the A bullpen, the B bullpen, the varsity bullpen, the junior varsity bullpen. I I get a kick out of how Bob Carpenter refers to the pens on Mass, and he calls it the ahead bullpen and the behind bullpen. However you want to refer to the pens, the A pen right now actually seems like it may be something, but the B bullpen is more like the F bullpen, and that was an F performance, at least from Machado and Murphy, especially Murphy on Thursday night. It is tough, and You know, it's almost comical because you put yourself in the shoes of Davey Martinez during these bad games for the B bullpen, and you know he is just begging for some kind of length from someone, and just way too often these guys refuse to give length. That is the problem. How many times do we keep saying, like, they used four relievers in this game, and can they just get through one with only three? He wanted to get through this one with only three, and he needed multiple innings from somebody, and nobody could give that to him. Andres Machado, 34 pitches in one inning that included two walks. Patrick Murphy, 38 pitches in one inning that included three walks and a wild pitch. In a game, you know, the final score shows that it was a little bit lopsided, but this game was within reach for most of the night. And this is where, look, you, you know that not everybody in your bullpen is going to be the guys who pitch when you're ahead the A bullpen. But you need to, if you're in that B bullpen and you take over a game that your team's trailing by, let's say, two runs in the sixth inning, your job is to post a zero and at least give your team a chance. Give the boys a chance to battle. Like, they gave them no chance. It felt, from the seventh inning on in this game, it felt like the Nationals had no chance of rallying. Not because necessarily that the lineup couldn't do it, but you knew the bullpen wouldn't be able to hold up its end of the bargain and keep the game close. That's a problem. It's something that I wouldn't be surprised if before too long we start to see some more changes there. You are going to need more than just those four. You need some other guys who can just keep a game within reach. Uh, i got to think we're close to seeing Tyler Clippert up here. And, you know, he's pitched well at AAA. I don't know if they're really waiting for him to pitch back-to-back days, something like that. But i got to think we're getting close to that point. He's certainly got to be a better option than some of the uh, pitchers they're putting out there right now. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, one of the real problems too with the state of the rotation is that 
if you had a little more confidence in your starters, you could maybe tap into the A bullpen on B bullpen nights. You know, you could lean on a Doolittle or a C Sheck or someone like that in a game that is within reach, but a game in which you don't want to just use all of your A reliever guys. But you can't do that because if you're Davey, you have to go into every game planning on using three to five relievers. I mean, that sounds crazy, but that's the position that the Nats are in this season, at least so far with the state of the rotation. So Johanna Doan was an at starting pitcher on Thursday night, and he struggled big time. Six runs in four and two-thirds innings. He gave up nine hits, two home runs, a triple, a double, and five singles. He issued three walks into wild pitch. He did have five strikeouts, but that helped to drive up a pitch count that ended up being at 91 pitches over his four and two-thirds innings. And even in innings in which he didn't necessarily get rocked, he still had problems. You know, you think about what happened in the bottom of the first. He only gave up one run, but he threw 26 pitches in an inning that could have been a lot worse than it ended up being. He gave up a leadoff homer to Daniel Vogelback, who had some night in this game on Thursday night. And then after giving up the homer, one out four-pitch walk, key Brian Hayes, one out eight-pitch walk of Yoshi Sutsugo. And then the real problems were in the bottom of the third, Adon in that inning giving up four runs. And, you know, if you watch the game, you know this. This bottom of the third became like batting practice of Yoan Adon. The Pirates were teeing off Adon in that inning. And if you watch the game on Masson, this is really interesting. Kevin Franzen, the new Masson Nats analyst, flat out said that Adon was tipping his pitches. And the Pirates were all over Adon in this inning. I mean, it became frightening some of the things that we were seeing. That two-run homer by Brian Reynolds, that was some shot to right field to tie the game at three. You know, even the last hit of the inning, that two-out first-pitch triple by Cole Tucker, that was a violent smash of the baseball off the center field wall. It was not pretty for Johan Adon for so much of this game, and once again, a Nat starter fails to even go five innings. Even more uh, in that inning, the final out was on a scorched ball third base, required a great play by Michael Franco. And one of the other outs was only uh, because of a great relay to get Kevin Newman at third, a two-run double into deep left center. And it was a nice job by Lane Thomas, Kelsey Escobar to Franco to throw him out at third. And so then we could all say after that, Newman. So he only got one legitimate out that inning. And that's interesting what Franson was saying because that was kind of, indicate you know a reason for why there was so much good contact now i don't know if they picked up on that in the dugout or not but the one saving grace in this game for a dome was that he did come back and in the fourth inning was pretty good a couple of strikeouts fifth inning two quick strikeouts and i'm thinking he's going to get through five which at that point in the third you never would have thought he'd get there and then he couldn't quite finish it and walk in a hit and maybe had to come pull him once his pitch count got up over 90 but there was an adjustment there, whatever it was. I'm not entirely sure what it was, but he did do something and sort of salvage it and at least get himself almost through the fifth. But what I'll say about Adone, he's young, obviously, and needs a lot of experience, but he's a pretty bright guy. And he's already shown an ability to take some things that he's heard within a game from the pitching coach, even things he just picks up on his own and able to apply them pretty quickly. So he seems to be a bright kid who's mature maybe beyond the 23 years and beyond the lack of you know upper-level minor league experience that he has. That could be a good sign in the long run, but he's still obviously very green and has a lot to learn and a long way to go before he's a reliable big league starter. 
Yeah, I mean, the results have been rough over these first two outings. His first outing came in that 5 nothing Nats loss to the New York Mets at Nationals Park this past Saturday night. Four runs in four into third innings. He gave up four hits, including a grand slam. He, in that game, issued four walks, a hit-by-pitch, and two wild pitches. Pretty clearly, control problems are a problem for Yoan Adon. I mean, it's two starts, and the Nats are not really in a position right now to just be yanking guys out of the rotation. They don't have many options, so I would think Adon gets at least another opportunity or two. But I mean, if this keeps up, it's going to be hard to keep sending him out there. This is not a Patrick Corbin situation where, you know, you're in year four of a six-year, $140 million contract. This is a guy who was signed as an amateur free agent, wasn't even supposed to make the rotation coming out of camp. He did, and that's a credit to him. But, you know, he's got to show something here at some point in these coming starts. But, you know, he does get strikeouts. I mean, that's good to see. He does throw hard. And, you know, off what you said, smart guy, maybe there is, you know, an adaptation and we do see improvement here. But uh, it it was tough. And again, that third inning, you know, I mean, the Pirates are not some great hitting team. Seeing them hit him like that, that was tough to watch as that third inning went on. Look, like I said, it's a work in progress. You can see, though, he has stuff, the maturity, all those things together. There's something there. There is potential there. I don't think Davey Martinez and Mike Rizzo would have put him in the big league rotation already if they didn't believe there was something there. But you got to understand there's going to be some lumps along the way. And now it's a question of how much of that are you willing to let him take at this level? And at what point do you worry that that's actually going to hurt his development in some way? It's a fine line. It's why you always have to be careful. Even with your best prospects, you got to be careful about calling them up too soon because once you do that, you kind of have to let them stay up here for a while. If they're worried that one or two bad starts they're getting sent back down, it can have long-lasting ramifications if they aren't mentally tough enough and understand how this all works. So I, I do think it's something they have to watch with. I agree. I think he's good for at least one more start. We'll see at that point what Annabelle Sanchez's status is. We'll see Kate Cavalli might be getting you know, closer to approaching and ready for the big leagues. But for now, I think a donut's here, at least for one more start. Yeah, you know, it's a fine line you try to walk, right? Because you want pitchers to grow and pitch through their struggles, but you also don't just want to keep sending a guy out there to get tattooed. You know, we hit on the bullpen. I did want to just loop back to Patrick Murphy. You know, to me, the Murphy appearance was the toughest one to take in. That 38-pitch bottom of the seventh, that is a time in our lives that unfortunately we will never get back. That inning took forever. And, you know, Davey just had Murphy out there because, again, Davey is begging for some kind of length from these B bullpen relievers. Murphy in this inning, two runs on three walks, two singles, two strikeouts. You know, I was thinking back to Murphy and when the Nats got him last year, remember off waivers from Toronto, he had been a fairly regarded prospect with the Blue Jays, but the book on him was, well, injury issues, number one, that has a bit of problem, but control problems. Like that was what the book on this guy was. And, you know, whenever someone is put on waivers by another team and you say, well, he's talented, why'd this team get rid of him? You know, and then he does well for you. You're like, oh, what was this team thinking? You know, we're so much smarter than they are. And then, you know, as time goes on, you can start to see, oh, that's what they saw. Oh, that's what they dealt with. And, you know, we're seeing that with Murphy because like a Doan, there is talent there. It's not like there's nothing there, but he really does have a hard time controlling the baseball yeah and uh, i agree with you that that was the bulk on him was command and i mean in this inning you had three walks one of them with the bases loaded a wild pitch and again you take the ball in that situation he's got two objectives try to keep the game within a reach and try to be efficient enough to be able to come back and pitch another inning you know and he couldn't even do that and you throw 38 pitches in one inning 
it's not like you're getting hit hard. You're up to that pitch count because of the walks. And, you know, Davey used a word that he hasn't often used after this game in describing the bullpen. That word was frustrating. Yeah, it's definitely frustrating. I mean, the walks, I mean, I think we walked eight or nine guys. That's not a, a word Davey likes to trot out there. And I think that tells you a lot about how he actually felt about this. If he's going to go so far as to use that word, that tells you that he legitimately was frustrated and maybe that means some changes are coming there. You know, they've got a 10-man bullpen right now. It's not going to be that way forever. Come May 1st, they have to pair the roster down to 26, and that probably means at least one, if not two, relievers. So they do need to have more guys they can trust, even when they're losing, and guys they can trust to pitch multiple innings. So I would not be surprised if before the end of the weekend if we see some changes there. That was the kind of outing, unfortunately, that can lead to a demotion. Yeah, Tyler Clippert can't come soon enough. I mean, at least with him, you know, durable, experienced, for the most part, pitches well. He'll give you some length. I mean, like, this is exactly what the doctor is ordering right now for this Nats bullpen. Hey guys, it's Al Galdi for Window Nation. Get your degree in savings during Window Nation's spring break sale. Get two free windows for every two windows that you buy for as many as you need and make no down payment and pay no interest for 24 months. That's two years. Just call 866-90-NATION or visit windownation.com. As you likely know, natural gas prices continue to rise. Does your energy bill say that you're using more energy than similar homes? This is because you need new windows. Increase the value of your home with curb appeal and save money on your energy bills by replacing your old inefficient windows with new energy efficient window nation windows buy two windows get two windows free pay nothing for two years no money down no payments and no interest for two full years save thousands of dollars these are savings that you'll only see once this year take advantage of Window Nation special offer. Window Nation has installed over a million windows and has an A-plus rating from the Better Business Bureau. Call 866-90-NATION or visit windownation.com. That's 866-90-NATION or visit windownation.com. And make sure that you tell Window Nation that Al Galdi sent you. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Here's the set and the pitch to Ruiz. Swing and a high fly ball deep right center field. Reynolds going back. Way back is Park on the warning track. Leaps and he can't make the play. 
Runners had to hold. Hernandez scores from third. Cruz now to third. To second is Bell, and Ruiz, who is two-thirds of the way to second, had to go back to first. Right now, it's a long single. The Nationals lead one to nothing. Well, what's funny about this 9-4 Nats loss at the Pirates on Thursday evening is that the Nats were up by three runs early in the game. The Nats jumped out to a 3-0 lead, a three-run top of the first. Unfortunately, the Nats scored just one run the rest of the game. Uh, The Nats finished with eight hits and six walks. It was good to see the Nats draw walks as they did in this game. Nats did go 3 of 11 with runners in scoring position, but I tell you something that's really jumping out right now with this Nats lineup, just not hitting for nearly enough power. I mean, you know, we watch these opposing teams for the Nats, and they will hit homers and doubles and the occasional triple. The Nats had eight hits on Thursday evening. All eight of the hits were singles, and You're obviously not going to make a living just hitting a bunch of singles in 2022 in MLB. The Nats right now aren't getting what we know they will be getting from Juan Soto and Nelson Cruz. Soto seems kind of stuck in that thing that we saw for a part of the early portion of last season in which his only hits like are singles. He's not hitting for a ton of power right now. That'll change. We get that. But Soto on Thursday night, 0 for 4 with a walk and two strikeouts. Big spot, top of the fourth. Runners at the corners, two outs. He struck out on five pitches. And the guy who really hasn't gotten going yet, and again, he will get going, but Nelson Cruz on Thursday night, one for four, had a single and a walk, but he struck out three times. And Nelson Cruz now on the season has an OPS of just 544. So again, these guys will get going. I'm not trying to press the panic button on them, but the offense, you know, it's had its moments here and there, but, man, it really does jump out to you. You're just not seeing many extra base hits from this lineup right now. Yeah, the one I'll say on this, Ruiz hit a ball that off the bat looked like it might be a grand slam, and it only came up a couple feet short of a grand slam, and then it you know went off the fence. And because Boyd Park, the Pirates' right fielder, was tracking it, all three runners had to hold up just to make sure it wasn't caught. And so the ball lands. Ruiz is rounding first. He went, he made it like halfway to second base. And they realized, oh, wait, Nelson Cruz is right in front of me. i got to turn around and go back. And so it ends up as like a 386-foot single. That ball was well struck, but they didn't have many others, you right, on this night. And, I mean, I thought, boy, they're going to take out JT Brubaker in the first inning, open up a big lead. This could be a nice, simple night at the ballpark. And Brubaker was able to get out of that inning, settle down after that, and Pirates of bullpen, not necessarily a bunch of names we know much about, but uh, Rowanzi Contreras, five strikeouts in three innings, 46 pitches in three innings for their reliever. What did I just say? The Murphy had 38 in one, Machado 34 in one. There's your difference in the game right there. And yeah, they just never got much of anything else going the rest of the night. And it does kind of fit in with that deal. What we're saying from what we've seen from this team so far, like the pitching staff has either been great or awful. There hasn't been a lot of in-between. Kind of the same with the lineup. They've had a couple of nights where it really all came together, and then other nights where there's just not much going on at all. In the long run, I think they're going to be fine offensively, like we said. Even in their good years, they always seem to get off to a slow start in the colder weather. So not hugely concerned in the long run offensively, but it did feel like this was a night where they could have busted out for a bunch of runs early, and they were held to those three and then never got anything more beyond that. Yeah, that was an interesting play with the K-Bert Ruiz RBI single off the right center field wall there in that three-run first inning because that, to me, you could almost argue should have been an error on Hoy Park. I mean, he, to me, could have made that catch. You know, I'm not. it wasn't like an easy catch, so I don't know if you qualify that as an error, but Hoy Park in that inning had all kinds of problems. He had trouble handling a Yadiel Hernandez one-out bases loaded two-run single to right field. So 
You know, the Nats maybe could have benefited some more from the uh, bad fielding of Hoy Park in right field. But Kbert Ruiz did have a couple of singles on Thursday night, including that RBI single. Yadiel on Thursday night, three for four with three singles, including a two-run single. He was back out there again, starting for the Nats. He was a starting left fielder and number six batter. Now, things got a little funky with the lineup because D. Strange Gordon was a late scratch due to illness. He was supposed to be the Nats starting center fielder. Lane Thomas ended up being the starting center fielder, but Yadiel was in there in left field. Boy, we're seeing a good bit of Yadiel Hernandez in this early portion of the season, and to his credit, he's doing a pretty good job. He's getting some hits here for the Nats. Yeah, and that, that's what it is. He's kind of earning playing time. Lane Thomas has been off to a little more of a sluggish start, so he hasn't played as much. We know that Victor Robles has gotten off to a really slow start. He was out of the lineup for the third time in eight games. And Davey, I, you know, I asked him about that, and he said they looked at the matchup. They didn't think it was a great matchup with Drew Baker, who throws a good slider. They know that Robles has trouble with the slider. And I think it's an interesting question here. Like, if they are committed to Victor Robles, are you really looking to maximize matchups? Or do you, at some point, you have to say, we need to put you out there and let you face a guy who might not be a good matchup, but let's see if this these swing changes we're trying to implement, if you can figure it out. You know, in the long run, they need to know if you can handle that. And maybe they'll get to that point. They're not there yet. But so far, I think that's pretty interesting that he has sat three of the eight games. And Yadiel has earned the playing time, certainly over Wayne Thomas at the moment. So, you know, we'll see. But... I think we kind of went into the season almost expecting a set lineup there in the outfield with Thomas, Robles, and Soto. That has not been the case. He's been playing matchups, playing the hot hand in Yadiel's case. I'm not exactly sure where that means this is going from here. Yeah, you know, you asked if you're committed to Robles. I think what's clear is that the Nats are not committed to Robles. And I'm almost going to start tuning out Davey when he talks about being committed to guys because he's done this with multiple people now over the years where he says – he's our guy. Or he says, I want this guy to be our guy. And then the guy ends up not being the guy. This happened with Carter Keboom a few years ago. This has happened with Victor Robles now in multiple consecutive seasons where he's either going to be the leadoff guy every game or he's going to be the starting center fielder. And then that lasts for about five minutes. And you know what I wonder about is this. So does Davey say these things just to say him and he doesn't really mean him? Does Davey say these things because he does mean them and then he changes his mind? Or does Davey say these things mean them and then someone above him, i.e. Mike Rizzo, says, no, you're not playing Robles every day. Like, I'm not sure which scenario is accurate, but clearly there is a disconnect between what Davey says. I mean, it was just a few weeks ago he said, I want Victor to be our starting center fielder to now where we are here again, eight games into the season, and Victor is not close to being your every game center fielder. So, I don't know if Davey just says these things and doesn't mean them, or he says these things and he changes his mind, or he says these things and he means them, but he's overruled. But clearly, we can't just take what Davey says as gospel with this stuff, because it's happened multiple times in recent years. I'll offer up another theory to that, and it could be him saying this as a way to try to publicly show support for them and to boost their confidence. These are guys who, all the names you just rattled off, who have been highly touted, but maybe haven't performed so well at this level, have been sent down at times, and maybe are not you know, fully established at this point, might be doubting themselves at times. So I think there could be a little bit of a manager trying to talk them up publicly and boost their spirits, boost their confidence. Whether that's the right strategy or not, that's up for debate, but I think it could be some of that. And, you know, look, I think he genuinely wants them to play well. I think he wants Victor Robles to be a good center fielder and earn that job every day. But does that mean that he thinks he clearly has earned it? No, and I think Davey also falls into right or wrong. 
notion as he's preached from all you know so many years here show up to the ballpark that day you're trying to go one and oh but if he thinks somebody else gives a better chance to win that game then he may not start somebody even if he ultimately is saying he's our everyday center field yeah i would just say if you're trying to build up somebody's confidence a good way to wreck that confidence is to say that you believe in the guy and then five minutes later your actions communicate something different like if you're going to say that then you need to stick to that for at least some significant amount of time otherwise don't say it you know just belichick it in these press conferences and don't commit to anything because that's okay too some people do that head coaches and managers they tell you like nothing in these pressers davy will actually give you stuff which is nice but if you say things and then you don't adhere to those things I think that can communicate things that maybe you don't want communicated so we'll see but look ultimately Victor needs to hit okay he doesn't hit and that's the problem that's ultimately what this all comes down to so do want to make that clear all right on Thursday morning we had an update on the Nationals ownership situation and this was interesting to see so Ted Leonsis's name has already come up at least a decent amount in terms of a prospective buyer of the Nats. And sure enough, Forbes on Thursday morning had a report that Ted Leonsis and another very rich person, David Rubenstein, are looking to make a bid for the Nats. The report was from Mike Ozanian of Forbes. Again, this came out on Thursday morning. Mike reported that, quote, according to MLB insiders, the buzz is that David Rubenstein and Ted Leonsis are going to team up to make a bid for the Washington Nationals owned by the Lerner family. And quote, Ted Leonsis, of course, is the owner of the Wizards and the Capitals and the Mystics. He is someone who I have heard has had an interest actually in buying the Orioles. I was told that by somebody a few years ago. So I don't think it's shocking necessarily that he would have an interest in the Nats. For those of you who don't know this, Mark Lerner, the Nats managing principal owner, is a minority investor in Monumental Sports Entertainment, which is kind of the umbrella company, the parent company for the Wizards and Capitals and Mystics. This guy, David Rubenstein, is one of three billionaire founders of a private equity firm called Carlisle Group. Interestingly, if you go by Forbes, Ted is worth $1.6 billion. This guy, Rubenstein, is worth $4.1 billion. So, you know, I think, and this has kind of been known with Ted, he would have to lead an ownership group. He himself is not wealthy enough to just buy the Nats on his own. So I, I don't know if Rubenstein would be the primary money guy and Ted would be the front man or how exactly it would work. But, you know, interesting to see this. We obviously know Ted Leonsis. I actually think he could be a very good owner for the Nats. So I don't think this is bad news by any stretch. But uh, what do you make of this? Ted Leonsis's name already coming up in this Nationals ownership saga. What I make of it is I think we're going to hear a lot of these kind of stories over the ensuing months. <laughs> you know, uh, this guy might be interested. This one might too. Maybe these two can pair up. I mean, I go back to 2005 when the team first arrived in town. And I think there were nine different groups that were officially in the running for it. And often those groups changed. And this one wasn't seen as a front runner, but then they brought in this guy to help them out or they combined efforts now said, oh, well, that's a stronger case. I would not be surprised if there's a lot of that uh, as this all goes out. Obviously, Ted Leontis is one of the first names you're going to think of if the learners are going to sell the team. He's local. He's had success as an owner with one of his teams, not as much with the other one. And, you know, is familiar, you know, with the learners. And let's remember, the learners have the right to pick who they want to sell the team to. And then supermajority of MLB owners have to approve it. So this is not like an open market where 
like MLB is going to say, okay, here's, you know, we're, we're handpicking you over this guy or whatever else. They're going to have a say, obviously, but this is ultimately the learner's decision at first, as long as it gets MLB approval and there's familiarity there. So, of course, it makes sense. I agree that given that he already owns the other two teams and what his net wealth is, he's probably not able to do this on his own. He's going to need help, whether it's from Rubenstein or someone else, whatever the structure of that would be. So you're going to see that. Obviously, we've already seen Jeff Bezos' name come up. It's an obvious one to have out there. There are going to be more. I would not be surprised if some of the names that we heard back in the day in 05, their names crop up again because clearly they were interested in owning a major league baseball team. So this is the first of many of these that we're going to hear. I'm not saying I don't give it any credence because there is certainly something there and it makes a lot of sense and it would only be natural for these guys to get involved and be part of the process. But it's going to be a long, slow process and there's going to be a lot of twists and turns along the way before we ultimately get to whatever the resolution of this is. The fact that Mark Lerner is a minority investor in monumental sports and entertainment, do you think that that in any way gives Ted a leg up in the sweepstakes? Or do you think that this just comes down to the highest bidder and that Ted and Mark know each other and have worked together doesn't mean much here? Well, I think it means something in that he knows what kind of owner Ted Leonsis is. You know, I don't think the learners just want to give this to whoever the highest bidder is. If, you know, they're not going to give it to somebody if they think that they're not going to continue to run the franchise the way they believe it should be run. So I think somebody who has DC connections is important. Somebody with past experience running a, a franchise. I think that does matter. But it's not just as simple as, oh, well, we know you and you know we're friends, so therefore you're going to be the guy. There has to be more to it than that. Obviously, money is ultimately a major part of the equation and they're not going to take a lowball offer from someone if somebody else is offering a whole lot more. So familiarity helps. I do think the Lerner family cares enough about this that they don't want to be seen as dumping this team on somebody else and then watching that new owner, you know, strip it down for parts and turn it into a franchise that's a shell of what it used to be. I think they do care enough about their legacy and that they don't want to be seen as having now done the surprising move that we didn't really see coming 16 years in and in doing so, hurt their own legacy of what they built here over 16 years. Does it feel to you, because it still feels to me like this is headed toward the learners selling the team, that this stuff about taking on a new limited partner or new limited partners, that's kind of like just dressing this up. Like It feels to me like the Nats truly are up for sale. I know you initially said you didn't necessarily think that that was the case. Do you think that's the case, or do you still think this could result in just new minority partners for the learners? I think as each day goes by, you start to think, yeah, this is probably headed for a, a full-on sale. You know, I think they're looking at all the options. And, you know, if Ted Leonsis came to them and said, hey, I can, you know, become a 49% owner of this team and help you guys get to where you want to go, you know, maybe there's some of that. I think there's also, you know, this is all, the other fascinating part of this is, we've talked about this the entire time that they've owned the team. This isn't one owner. You know, Mark Lerner is the managing principal owner, but he's not calling the shots himself. Every big decision they make, even every small decision they make, is made by the entire family. And they don't always agree on everything. I go back to the Dusty Baker decision, which, you know, upset so many people within the organization. That wasn't a consensus decision to fire him. There were people in ownership who wanted to keep him and others who didn't. And they wound up taking their vote or they decided to break these things and what gets priority. And they went with that as a group decision. So... I don't know that everybody in the Lerner family is 100% for selling the team. The issue is who among the group is, who isn't, and you know where do they see this ultimately going in the long run. Well, you tell us what you think. You can hit us up on Twitter at Nats underscore chat. You can email the podcast, NatsChatPodcast 
at gmail.com, including if you would like to sponsor the NatChat podcast, if you would like to be a part of the enterprise that is the NatChat podcast, email Tim Shovers, let him know. We can work something out. Uh, again, the email address, NatChatPodcast at gmail.com. Our new NatChat podcast t-shirt is out. You can get yours by going to NatChatPodcast.square.site. That's NatChatPodcast.square.site. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast if you're not already doing that. Uh, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify, please give the Nats Chat Podcast a five-star rating. The Nats pitching staff may not warrant a five-star rating, but hopefully this podcast does, and uh, the five-star ratings do very much help out the cause of the podcast, so we appreciate those. So on the last installment of the podcast, we threw out a new like evergreen topic that we're going to be having some fun with, and that is your story of your first baseball game that you attended. And you can send us emails with those stories. You can also send us voice memos with those stories. And then we'll play the audio on the podcast. Well, of course, because you guys are the best, we already have gotten like a truckload of stories of people telling the tales of attending their first baseball games. Uh, these stories are a lot of fun. And so we're going to leave you with one of those stories right now. It comes to us from Jeremy Schooler. And I think you guys will enjoy this one. So enjoy Jeremy's tale, and Mark and I will talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast. First MLB game I can ever remember going to was June 18th, 2006. Nats Yankees at RFK Stadium. I was eight years old, and I can remember a few things very vividly. One, it was heavily Yankees fans, and I remember going from the concourse through the tunnel to the seats where you can you know you can see the field and everything and I just remember seeing how huge the stadium was how many seats there were the the grass was so green the the infield dirt was perfect like the players just warming up throwing so effortlessly I remember like how in awe I was by the whole stadium and everything which obviously is ironic because um, RFK was a dump compared to most uh, stadiums of the mid-2000s at that point um, but then I just remember Ryan Zerman hitting that walk-off home run off Chin Ming Wong. Um, and I was at the game with my dad and my uh, good friend and his dad. And, you know, mostly Yankees fans, and we were just so happy. And I even remember the giveaway. I still have it. The giveaway was players um, with their dad's baseball cards. There was, like, Gary Majeski and his dad, uh, Nick Johnson and his dad, I think Ryan Zerman and his dad, just a few others like that. So that was really cool to have. I still have those, as I said. And I just... I remember being hooked after that. Like, that was it. Like, you know, I was a big Nats fan before that, but that was the earliest game I can remember going to. My dad has told me, you know, we went to a few games before that. Um, went to a couple in Camden Yards just to, you know, see baseball, even though we weren't Orioles fans ever. But that was the, the first time I can ever remember going to a game, and I'll never forget it. And then, uh, you know, 16 years later, on that exact same day, June 18th, 2022, we'll be back um, at Nats Park for number 11 uh, retirement ceremony. Ryan Zimmerman is being saluted with a standing ovation, which includes the Boston Red Sox. Their entire team is out on the edge of the grass, giving Zimmerman an ovation. He's saluting the crowd as he's being taken out of the game. He's patting his chest, looking to all corners of Nationals Park. Davey Martinez is hobbling out to greet him. <laughs> Zim mimicking Davey's gait. And they embrace in front of the first base side dugout. Well, the Nationals didn't come out of the dugout to take the field. Zim went out and he turned around. He was the only one on the field. And then everyone came out to applaud his teammates to hug him. And then Alex Cora led his team out onto the field. It's something to see. 
Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.